hoodlums, this is Lanise, the host of High and Mighty, the podcast for your political potheads. Today, we're joined by Amber Littlejohn, the executive director of MCBA, a minority cannabis business association, and someone I consider a mentor. Good to chat with you again. What have you been up to? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Lanise. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I like how you said to be here. It just reminded me. I was like, you know what, Lanise, you could enunciate better too. You can enunciate better too. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to strive for that in, in my uh, 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 episode today. Did you ever do speech therapy? Um, I didn't, but they, uh, I am a lawyer by trade. And so they hammer away at you. Among the abuses that you suffer in <laughs> law school, it is uh, flogging into you uh, some level of speech skills. Um, so uh, that is something that naturally kind of starts to occur. Uh, and my other profession is lobbying. So I basically talk all of the time for a living. Uh, so you get to play around with your skill set when that's the majority of what you do. <laughs> nice. Nice. I did have to do a little speech therapy back when I was a, a young and knee-high niece. And um it works really well when you're like immersed in it. Um, but I do feel that, you know, not being in speech therapy daily, I'm, I'm, I was just inspired. I, I was like, you know what, Lenise, you know better. Amber is over here setting a good example. So, so thank you. Well, I will <laughs> tell you that one thing that I do have to practice on my own is my body's natural tendency to believe that it is being chased by bears at the slightest stimuli. So I do a lot of like breathing exercises and visualizations to keep my body from reacting, you know, my sympathetic nervous system from taking off and, and making me feel anxious when I am not anxious. So when I speak publicly, I, I do uh, a lot of breathing exercises, visualizations, things like that, uh, so that my body knows there are no bears, just a conversation, just, just an audience full of people. You will nice. be able to. So when I do public speaking, I just accepted that I might have a little vomiting session beforehand. And that's just well, I mean, there is always it. vomiting. I mean, <laughs> that's just part of the... <laughs> as long as you're far enough from the audience and you are prepared, then I, I feel like it's just a little vomit. <laughs> that's all it is. It's a little bit of my body expressing its excitement to, to be here today uh, before I've left the stage. Take it as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I don't vomit for every situation. <laughs> this is things that whatever my body has decided is really important. Only the important stuff. Exactly. So you mentioned that, that, that you were a lawyer by trade and, and that you do lobbying. Can you tell me more? I mean, all I know about lobbying is, is the stuff that I see on hot TV shows. And, and you know, it, it usually involves someone in a really nice suit. And, and, and it looks like they're having a good time usually out on, on the night. Um, so... So is that what lobbying is? Do you do you have nice fancy drinks with elected uh, officials? There, uh, pre-COVID, there was definitely an element of that. There is, you know, sometimes uh, nice suits. Uh, and then I went to cannabis. So the nice suit thing is maybe not a thing anymore. Uh, but, you know, the, the fundraisers, the drinks, the dinners, that is part of it, uh, or at least was part of it. But the 99% of what we do is far less glamorous. Um, I have spent the bulk of my advocacy, federal kind of advocacy policy lobbying career, uh, doing the less fun work, drafting regulatory comments, doing research, uh, advocacy proposals, white papers, strategic 
policy development, things behind the scenes, um, digging in old pieces of, of legislative history and random pieces of, of administrative law. So the bulk of it is really far less exciting. Um, I think another image people have of lobbyists is, you know, that we are all advocating for, you know, big pharma or, you know, Yes. Why do y'all hate humans? (laughs) Why? Why does? I mean, I really picked the two professions that people probably hate most, both a lawyer and a lobbyist. Um, But the reality is, if there is somebody advocating uh, for or against something, there needs to be somebody on the other side. Uh, So for every, you know, big oil lobbyist, there needs to be an environmental lobbyist. Um, And that's why it's important that we uh, have cannabis lobbyists, that we have social justice lobbyists, that we have criminal justice reform lobbyists. Um, We are a pretty decently tight-knit community here when it comes to the cannabis reform community. Uh, in D.C., we run the gamut of, you know, corporate Republican lobbyists for some firms and companies to, you know, pretty, you know, people who their history and their their lineage is, is definitely rooted in criminal justice reform um, and activism. Uh, my roots are a little bit different. I came through the dietary supplement slash natural products industry. Okay. I have always worked for small businesses, um, kind of embattled uh, alternative medicine type of spaces. Um, So the progression through kind of hemp CBD and then ultimately into cannabis was natural. Wow. Wow. So when you were talking, I was, I I learned so much mainly I'm surprised that once again, Hollywood has lied to me and lobbying isn't exactly what they've been showing this whole time. But while you were explaining uh, what you do do as a lobbyist, um, you 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 sw- use so many different words. You said lobbying once. You said advocacy once. You said um, engaging once, or something like that. Is it possible? Can you uh, uh, break it down for folks? Um, what's the difference? Is there a difference? Is it all the same lobbying and av- and, and, and advocating? Um, um, what? Is what's the what is what is the difference, or it's just this different word for the same thing? You know, I think it's about sort of the actions and the spirit and intent. Uh, I consider myself an advocate first. Uh, that's because I actually believe in the causes. I am committed to the causes uh, for which I lobby. Um, advocacy has its roots a little bit more firmly grounded in, you know, kind of the activist history and and lobbying is is really highly technical you can be an advocate and not be a lobbyist a lobbyist includes you know in addition to the formal you know registration and and actually having to let the federal government know you're there and what you're doing um you know there is a lot of technical slash politicking involved Mm -hmm. and and it's very much a chess game at times and Whereas advocacy can be really figuring out just simply ways to get your your message across. Um, it could be telling a story. It could be building coalitions. And, and there's absolutely crossover between that and lobbyists. Um, and really anybody can be both of those things. Um, you know, again, lobbying does involve some technical things, um, a little bit more knowledge maybe of, you know, parliamentary procedure and congressional rules and things like that. But um, 
you really can be both. Uh, and you don't, when it comes to the federal level, until 20, until you, one, are getting paid, or and in addition to that, uh, at least 20% of what you're doing um, is actually geared towards lobbying the federal government, then you won't have to register. Those rules are a little bit different on the state level. Some states really can easily trigger if you are paid um, you know, some automatically require you to file, but um, really not a lot of difference. I, I tend to think that it's about sort of the spirit. There are people that are just guns for hire and they don't care truly um, about the cause. And I, I consider those lobbyists, not advocates. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So, so in another way, or just with this, did this capture uh, what you're saying that maybe in an advocate, um, the way that they're doing the work, they could care about, they definitely care about the issue and they might just be trying to amplify the issue, but they're not really playing a numbers game or a win game. They're just kind of like that kind of out of the politics. They're just amplifying the message, talking about, you know, what needs to be heard. Whereas a lobbyist may or may not care about the issue is definitely trying to amplify the issue, but mainly their goal is to get to the win number, whatever that win number might be. Yeah, I, I really think, again, that not all lobbyists are advocates. Not not all lobbyists have, have their heart in the mission, whereas um, I think the best lobbyists are actually advocates. Um, you know, in, in the law profession, they encourage us to be zealous advocates for our clients, you know, meaning you got to go all in and really kind of you know, dedicate yourself within the bounds of your ethical responsibilities to seeing your client or your mission through to success. And, and I think that is the spirit with which all lobbyists should approach their work. It is not, however, the case. Okay, so I'm passionate about cannabis justice. You know, I, uh, I, uh, I decided to, to, to not go seek uh, a decent job after grad school where your money and your paycheck is guaranteed every two weeks after you do the things they said to do. I decided to go and want to <laughs> co-found a, a community organization. So, you know, I, I, I think I can say I'm, 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 I, I also did some volunteer work for the city of Oakland as a, uh, on, the, on the Cannabis Commission. So I say I, I'm, a, I'm passionate about cannabis justice. And I, I would say that maybe some of those people out there in podcast land are political um, pothead friends, they might be passionate about cannabis justice as well. So what do we do? Where do we go sign up? How do I want to be a lobbyist? Well, I think hypothetically. you an extraordinary lobbyist, by the way, because uh, we have spent enough time together to know that you're an incredibly strategic thinker and an incredible coalition builder. And those two things make phenomenal lobbyists. And we need more people who are passionate actually getting in there and doing the work. So um, being a lobbyist, it's about, you know, <laughs> building the relationships and connections. And, and I'm speaking now to the federal level, um, connecting with organizations like my uh, like MCBA or others that are doing federal engagement and leveraging those opportunities to build your own connections and to build your own relationships with lawmakers, reaching out to your own lawmakers, reaching out to the lawmakers mm -hmm. on a committee of jurisdiction about an issue you care about. All of those things are lobbying behaviors um, that anyone can do. Um, and then ultimately, again, if, if you want the official rubber stamp of being that, um, 
getting paid and, and making that your livelihood. And folks who are incredible organizers and, and folks who are uh, really gifted strategists are much needed in this movement. And they are definitely um, needed on the federal level, especially when it comes to amplifying the message of economic justice, because that's something that often is missing from the federal equity narrative. Uh, because it is not as resonant um, to politicians uh, as some of the other things that they like to tout um, to the media. From your perspective, because you know you're 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 MCBA, you have you know that you you have your, your lobbying background. You said you've always worked with the small businesses. Um, I feel like small businesses and such sometimes they, you know, do it like ourselves or um, or maybe small organizations, nonprofits think they to do it yourselves or um, we don't have the funding. And I was like, my question is how 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 much of a, of a right or wrong or strategic decision is that like, um, for example, I'm thinking when as someone like myself, people who are passionate about cannabis, we could decide to go do volunteer work. We could decide to go, um, you know, join a, a nonprofit or become a member or do whatever that does. But from what you're saying, um, I just it seems to me that it's all about the relationships and it's all about taking those relationships and, 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 and being able to leverage them um, so you can cash in. Uh, on a transaction called getting something passed, like a, a, a policy or something not passed. Um, and so it just seems that maybe because of TV, we, we go always straight to wanting to hold up our signs, but maybe we, we, we another way is to go get that, that suit. Um, so I, I'm saying, like, do you, th do you think that the cannabis justice movement might possibly be f further along if our passionate people, um, took another route when they, when they entered? I think there absolutely has to be both. There has to be both. Uh, an interesting piece of history to point to, uh, and it's actually current, I guess it's also current affairs. Um, it's kind of a gross example, but it is a parallel. Um, and that is the white supremacist movement made a decision maybe 20, 30 years ago, that instead of holding rallies, you know, focusing on holding rallies and scaring people, they were actually going to put on suits and they were going to get good jobs and they were going to get elected. Um, and we are seeing uh, the results of that right now. Um, I am by no means saying that we should all be insane white supremacists, but what I'm saying is borrowing a page from that and that we should thank have you no no i actually that's that's what i'm talking about we need to be you know like you you because literally you go to the doctor you don't know you should be talking to the head the head cuckoo -cuck man i don't know what the, what, what they call um uh, the grand pooba whatever you know you really have no idea you, you, you go to the dmv less likely because they have so many black women working at the dmv but you, you, Definitely you, see <laughs> you see what i'm saying like I'm sorry, I cut you off, but I was like, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, have yeah. we have maybe we watched too many like Malcolm X or Selma movies and we're like, oh, yeah, that's how you get changed. Because like they, they, didn't, they didn't make a KKK movie where they showed us how they had that round table discussion and decided to start putting the hood on and put a suit on. We, they didn't yeah. make that movie. So I haven't seen it. So I didn't know to do that. So 
Well, they tend to like to to show us struggle narratives and often injecting themselves as the uh, savior. So that is the thing as well. But yeah, I mean, there has to be both and there has to be folks who are truly committed to the cause, willing to put on the suit, willing to play the game, willing to make the maneuvers, uh, folks that are able to enter into spaces and have conversations. Um, I have to proverbially hold my nose frequently when I have conversations with certain people, certain congressional offices, certain organizations. But I have these conversations um, because I am interested in getting the work done. And this is not about compromise. It is about understanding the narrow parts of intersection, because no matter how divergent folks are, there tends to be a thing here and there that we will agree on. Um, And when those entities, whether they be business interests, whether they be companies, whether they are politicians or think tanks, um, there can be, when you are kind of the smaller, uh, less empowered, um, being able to identify those synergies with, with larger, maybe not holistically aligned organizations and be able to leverage that to move the ball in all kinds of different ways is really necessary. And one of the places that we struggle as a community is being able to, again, hold your nose and be willing uh, to do that and realize that one, you don't have to be seen in public with them. You don't have this, not a marriage. Um, there is no commitment <laughs> to this person. It is about aligning in a moment uh, on an issue. Uh, I think a really good example of that is kind of the libertarians and the Cokes. Um, that is, you know, that is not an organization that I, you know, you know, what they have done to voting rights, what, you know, what they have done really across the, across the board in terms of, uh, you know, elevating the status of the corporation over folks is, is not really, you know, it's, it's something that I find reprehensible. However, um, they are strongly aligned with our community on the issue of criminal justice reform. Oddly, I still can't quite wrap, reconcile that with the rest of their policy, but they are strongly aligned and have, and have invested millions, tens of millions of dollars, uh, probably hundreds of millions of dollars over the decades um, in that and have been really the driving force between a, behind a lot of successful criminal justice reform efforts. Um, another place that there is alignment, uh, at least for small minority uh, cannabis businesses, is in ensuring that the markets are open and not captured and that there's access to cap, you know, that there's access to market um, and minimized regulatory burdens. So that's probably the clearest example that I could think of in the cannabis space where um, maybe not, you know, somebody you want to hang out with and, and have dinner with or start campaigning for, but there are alignments and addressed strategically in a way that, um, you know, you are not co-signing holistically on their efforts or their organization, but that you are identifying the synergy and working towards it can be really powerful, especially when we are swimming uh, upstream. Exactly. And, and as um, as someone says, um, no permanent enemies, no, no permanent friends. Um, and then someone else said something about, you know, how policy can make for strange bed partners. So between those two things, you know, we got everything you just said. (laughs) I frequently uh, look around on Zoom calls or around tables at, you know, in-person gatherings and go, how did I get here? And if I told my family at Christmas, would they kick me out? (laughs) 
Um, but at the end of the day, um, I the mission is more important to me than my, my ego or my personal feelings. Um, so I am willing to, for the sake of working towards ending cannabis prohibition and, and really fighting for economic justice through cannabis that I'm willing to, to, to deal with it. Thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for putting that suit on and, and getting out and, and, and going out to work. Um, yeah. you know, I still got my markers and, and butcher paper with my, for my, for my protest signs. But um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I've been thinking about that suit. I've been thinking about that suit. Um, so I have a question for you about this federal policy in general, because, you know, that's 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 your land. That's that's what you got going on. Now, there's 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 been a lot of action lately. I know last year um, there was a historical vote in the 117th Congress where we had the more else more act being voted on in that one house. Then we had um, this year we've we've had that uh um mr schumer talking about cannabis on the television um i think i saw uh, uh senator booker saying that he was gonna lay his life on the line lay his life on the line if safe banking got passed before comprehensive uh, uh policy um so this is and then there is um something that was introduced that was a bill but wasn't a bill called the CAOA. So there's been a lot of action in the last like 18 months, right? So yeah. if, if any of that action, if it's like, even that is called uh, like those movements action, uh, if any of those, those, those federal policies that have been, been getting active, is any, if anything was to get passed today, um, is it possible or what is the likelihood that that policy is both operator friendly meaning that it's not going to create a huge extinction round for those that are already operating in states that are, have, have legalized adult use or medical, and especially for those that have equity programs, understanding that some of those equity programs included felonies as a part of a way to get a license and addresses uh, the harms of the drug war. So if something that, that's been all the rave the last 18 months in this cannabis, just, this cannabis policy sp space is any of those federal policies, if it were to get passed today, would it be operator friendly and address the harms of the drug war? Uh, the very simple answer is no. Um, none of the pieces of legislation that have been introduced would do both of those things. Because we don't have uh, enough suits yet? Uh, no, it's, <laughs> it's really within the legislation itself. Um, and I will start with the MORE Act. Um, you kind of a little bit have to understand the history of the MORE Act. The MORE Act was created uh, by drug policy reformers. Um, and so there isn't uh, the criminal justice provisions uh, really are not geared to accomplish what I think they set out to accomplish. Uh, it would indeed legalize cannabis and end prohibition, uh, possibly. But there are two parts to ending prohibition. There is actually descheduling, but then there is not recriminalizing. And mm -hmm. one of the big challenges of the MORE Act um, is that without a regulatory framework and without really prescriptive language to keep the federal government from putting people back in jail, they will put people back in jail. Mm -hmm. uh, so when the MORE Act passed last year, uh, in the House, it included language that would have excluded people with previous felony convictions from getting a federal permit. 
Um, while we don't agree people should have to get a federal permit anyways, we definitely don't agree that um, having a previous cannabis conviction should prevent you from doing that. Um, so they modified that language um, in the new iteration that is now circulating and, and passed in the House Judiciary Committee. Um, but one of the things that they did was make it less operator friendly. So still no regulatory framework, which leaves it wide open for FDA and TTB and whoever to have fun, DEA even. Um, but they also pulled the funding that was exclusively there for small minority cannabis businesses. Um, and the mechanisms for funding for that and the CAO Act uh, proposal, both direct funding through SBA, which we know could be problematic. So then the CAO, the, the Booker, Wyden, Schumer thing is actually a discussion draft right now, which means it's not legislation. It is uh, a draft of legislation. And they engaged the community and very much, you know, looked for feedback. Uh, many of the provisions, though, were based on the Moore Act. So the same challenges with expungement and resentencing that exists with the Moore Act carry over into the CAO Act. So I know that uh, organizations like Rebound and others really, um, and a lot of the, the folks that are actually doing the criminal justice reform work on the ground, all submitted feedback with concerns and we really kind of echoed their concerns and directed uh, lawmakers to them for expertise. Um, and then the way that the CAO Act is proposed on the industry side, it was, extraordinarily deferential to FDA, um, cut USDA out, um, and really you have either a drug or you have adult use. It would have eliminated um, adult use cannabis. It would have been a really rough ride in a transition to interstate commerce. So mm -hmm. none of the comprehensive proposals are there yet when it comes to both. Um, we are anticipating the arrival uh, shortly of an interesting proposal um, coming from the other side of the aisle. Uh, and this Yay. is, a, yeah, wow, right? Um, uh, while I, I can't go into tremendous detail, I will just say that um, we are anticipating that this proposal will be very libertarian driven. And so when it at least comes to the operator side, there will be a lot more to protect small operators and to pre prevent government overstep. Uh, so we're definitely, uh, but with that said, it is a Republican bill, so we are not anticipating that it is going to come out with strong uh, uh, social equity provisions. Although I think it is very important to say one of the mistakes that we make when assessing equity, and this is holding us back on the federal and the state level, is that we look, you know, we do a, a keyword search. Does it say social equity? Does it say equity? Um, and so the reality is a lot of the inequities exist outside of the provisions that are created for us and aimed at, at you know, creating social equity programs or creating justice. They exist in licensing provisions. They exist in zoning provisions. They exist in taxes, regulatory compliance. Um, all of these places, so it's really important to look at a piece of legislation holistically, whether it be state or federal, to assess whether or not it is equitable. So, um, again, uh, I, I want so, so to... So to be clear, it's a, a policy isn't equitable if it has an attached equity program. It's a policy is equitable if it's equitable. 
Yeah, it has to be holistically equitable. Yeah, it can't just be like, you put a little uh, like a a little side salad on it. And, <laughs> and the the sad part is that on the state level, in particular, um, these equity programs that are created don't actually even end up working because of all of the other provisions. A good example is you can have a social equity program with a you know a head start for people that meet the social equity criteria. But if you have, uh, but if you have already given an even longer head start to medical operators, if there are zoning restrictions that don't apply to medical operators, if others are allowed to, you know, vertically integrate and others are not, um, all of these type of things kind of add up over time to make um, to make a whole system inequitable and to really even break down the efficacy of a of a social equity program. And we will see that carry over into the federal realm as well. Um, a good example of that is if you are going to fund programs to assist small minority cannabis businesses with adult use tax revenues, those revenues will come too late to actually help people. Um, yep. You need to actually fund them in advance of the legalization process to ensure that there is a pathway uh, and a meaningful pathway. And so those are the type of things that we worked on. Um, MCBA submitted over 30 pages of comments on the CAO Act, um, focusing a lot on kind of the misfit of, of SBA, regulatory mm-hmm. burden, um, as well as the need for the federal government to actually invest in the disparity studies and collecting the data that it needs to be able to to protect, uh, to be able to implement remedial race classifications um, that can survive constitutional scrutiny. Because we're seeing around the country for the states that allow it, any sort of remedial race classifications or anytime they are, you know, are, are being threatened or when they're using proxies for race, those are being threatened as well. And, and a lot of that has to do with um, not providing the data necessary to, to support that from a, a legal perspective, which can be done because Lord knows if ever um, there was uh, a disparate impact. Uh, I mean, it's not just disparate impact. It was absolutely discriminatory intent, which is something very rare um, in these laws. So, if ever remedial race classifications in the laws put forth are, are warranted, it's it's here. Thank you for sharing that. We've just covered a lot. I feel like I feel like a lot. I feel like whoever is listening, you know, was, you're you're a lobbyist now, basically. You know, go get registered, <laughs> get your suit, get to work. You know, um, but before they get their suit, they get registered. Um, I want you to, to leave us with, with two tips um, so that we could be most strategic in our efforts. So I have two questions for you. You can answer them in whatever order you want. Um, um, who's our block? Like if it's like, if you could name like, if this one person would just step in line, we would just, we would, we would be able to get the, the, the operator friendly policy that, that also addresses the arms of the drug war. So who's our block on that? Right. If some get this one, and then the other, and then the, the flip side of that is who's our homie? Like who out there riding for us? Who should we be sending our five cents and rounding up our the, the change in our next purchase to donate to their campaign, sort of thing? 
Well, when it comes to the block, I mean, Congress itself is the biggest block and congressional politics are the biggest block um, until Mitch McConnell leaves. Uh, and Mitch McConnell is about to become a lot more of a problem if we lose. And it's looking like when we lose uh, at least one chamber of Congress. Um, so Mitch McConnell will always be a problem. His his brand of racism is a, is a whole, uh, it, it's poisonous. Um, but he is not, you know, but it is really Congress and the gridlock itself. Um, but as long as we are holding on to this, you know, the maneuvering that is required uh, that makes it so that we need 60 votes to get anything through, um, that's going to be a problem. So that's why I'd say Mitch McConnell is the biggest block. Um, in okay. terms of- You hear that, folks? Mitch. All right. <laughs> figure it out. Yeah. Anyone who opposes him, please get out, you know, uh, donate to their campaigns, uh, knock on doors. Um, when it comes to support, uh, although we differ on uh, the timing of safe banking, Cory Booker is an incredible uh, uh, champion. He really believes, again, he will lay himself on the line for this. When it comes to comprehensive reform, um, but I really can't, uh, I have three house, three folks in the house that I really, I can't overlook because they have been carrying this mission for a very long time before it was cool. Um, and before it actually made its way into the Senate. And that is Barbara Lee, um, Shout out. Uh, Blumenauer and Ed Perlmutter. Um, so these are folks that have really kind of stuck their neck out on the line, um, for years. I mean, Blumenauer and Lee have been doing this for decades. Um, and Perlmutter has been, you know, again, fighting a, a really good fight when it comes to trying to get the banking bill passed. So um, I definitely have to give a lot of love to the House side because they've been doing a lot of work uh, and the work just seems to go die in the Senate. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Is there anything that you think that our our friends need to know um, that I have yet to ask you? You know, I, I think the main thing I want people to take away from this, and it, it really is based a lot on something you said to me, Lenise, not too long ago. Uh, this was around the time of the War Act, and we were having discussions about that. And that is, you know, there is there is strength and there is value and there being diversity of approach and perspective within a coalition. And so even when it comes to our community, and I'm not even talking just your, you know, your strategic partnerships where you're holding your nose and these are, you know, but I do encourage people to seek out, to get creative and think about who else cares about this issue and like really who else um, is it, you know, farmers in Modesto, is it, you know, who who else cares about the issue? But then within our own community, I really encourage people to uh, support and invite and be comfortable with differences of perspective because I am the executive director of a trade association. So my message and approach will be geared around the needs uh, of a business community and the minority business community. Um, but I work with organizations that focus on criminal justice reform. I work with organizations that focus on education. And 
I work with people who will are burn it down, light it all on fire activists. Um, and they are an important part of our mm-hmm. community and the overall coalition. And so I think it's important to allow uh, people the space and organizations to the space to do their mission and to work with folks and to not uh, insist that we approach things the exact same way because to me it's beautiful because we can flank them from all sides exactly and we can hit them from all perspectives and all levels if we are working together so that is something that i really invite people to uh, form diverse coalitions and be comfortable with the diversity of perspective uh, kind of applying our our dei principles to our coalition building a culture that supports a little diversity within reason of course exactly because there's nothing like um you know the 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 the, the reformist you know i, I was like if i would think of the hooding debate i guess we're, we're more reformist we're not like light it up burn it down but light it up burn it down i couldn't do my work without light it up burn it down light it up burn it down without their existence it would be even harder for me to do reform so for example uh, if Light Up Burn It Down was like, we need 100% of the cannabis tax revenues to go to survivors of the drug war. That sounds reasonable. But, you know, but the folks who are in power, you know, aren't. So that's so that's great. Say that. Light Up Burn It Down. That I can come through and be like, we need something. <laughs> and here. then they're going to be like, and then we'll they're take, like, here. We'll take 85. I'll take, I was like, Listen, I was like, they crazy. They crazy, white man. How are they going to take 100%? Who's going to pave the roads? See, we're not crazy like that. We reasonable. We only want 85%. And then you see, and then, then and then, and then they be like, we, 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 by the end of it, we got our negotiations. We, could, we get the 50%. And then, and then me and the light down activists, we go to our favorite bar and we have a drink and we laugh how we played everyone to get what we mutually wanted but you see without that 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 that, that friction mm-hmm. um i know I, they help me look desirable they help they help you have to have the the i'm gonna say the, the crazy burn it down because usually their ideas aren't that crazy um the, but <laughs> uh, that's what makes them so powerful is they are rooted in truth and they exactly. are on the side of right and so i love to Y'all they're my best friends. Don't make me call my friends. They're, they're my best friends. <laughs> don't make me call my friends. So. And, I, and I'll tell them exactly what to say. I was like, they will really get their feelings hurt if you say that. And I, I can't say this because yeah. you know I'm I'm nurturing my relationship with them, but I know exactly what will make their feelings get hurt uh, and maybe change their mind. So you say it, mm-hmm. and 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 if we don't have that that closeness and, and trust in our relationships and that inside outside strategy, yeah. how are we ever going to be able to, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, and on the flip side of it, I have organizations I work with. I was like, Oh, I can't stomach these people. Can you, can you go talk to these people over there? Exactly. And also because I don't even want to deal with them and it is not good for me or for the community to have me even interacting with those people. So it it really works both ways. And so I just encourage people as they are growing in their activism and lobbying um, to just be open to that and be open to diverse coalitions and, uh, you know, you know, unusual strategic partners. Um, some so of you're saying work if you're not uncomfortable, 
Yeah, you should be uncomfortable. Yes, yeah, so, so, so if you're not uncomfortable, you're not doing it right. It really is uncomfortable work, uh, especially in the federal realm. I, I talk to people about the transition from state to federal because it is uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, it is very drama, high stakes. Everybody, you know, it feels like everybody is like scheming and plotting, and they are. Um, that's the job. <laughs> because they are. Um, but the translation over uh, is hard because I think there are some feel-good victories that occur on the state and local level, especially the local level, um, where the people can come together and drive change in a very grassroots and organic way. And grassroots and organic activism is definitely part of it on the federal level. But it's rarely a feel-good victory. <laughs> it is almost always compromise um, because... Well, let me say it is always compromise and you are not always going to feel like mm, this is awesome at the end of that. But then when you reflect on the breadth of the impact that a federal law has, it, it does make you feel better at the end of the day. And I think that's important because, you know, again, Hollywood, they show me the movies. I see them at the end. You get the campaign. Everyone stands up. They clap in. People are hugging. Sometimes there's tears because we've been watching the whole movie to see them get to this place. So I've had many policy of, of, of victories or whatever they want to call it. Now, I would say um, pretty much 9.5 times out of 10, I've never gotten a hug. I just want to say that. I've, and I've also not offered a hug. But the time that I remember the most was something that we have been fighting for, fighting for, for the longest time. And I remember, I was like, this must be some good policy. Because it got passed, and it was like everyone was mad. <laughs> the elected officials was mad. The the people that we didn't like was mad. The people I like was mad. I was mad. It was just like one of those policies where everyone walked away upset, and that's how you knew it was good, Bill. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you know, I think cannabis is going to be a lot of that. I, I think we underestimate the challenges we will have within the Democratic Party, even in ref in creating. And, you know, I think the Democrats are committed to equity, but they are absolutely not committed to keeping pharma, you know, mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industry involvement at a reasonable level um, or even fighting for the existence of medical cannabis. Um, so it's going to be a journey. You know, again, I think there is a great likelihood that we lose Congress uh, and to the Democrats lose Congress. I think there is a chance that we could lose the White House. Um, so it's going to be a long journey uh, to getting there. I unfortunately do not think comprehensive reform is, is anywhere soon on the horizon. Uh, because again, as I mentioned, we'd have to get to 60 votes, which means that we'd need, I, I think that's uh, 10 to 14 Democrats, I mean, 10 to 14 Republicans to vote for a comprehensive proposal. And they've already let us know that they're not interested in equity, so. Yeah, and, and they can't even figure out, you know, how to keep the country open and operating right now. They can't even make drugs cheaper for old people. Like they, they <laughs> can't, like, they can't even like give women who have just given birth, like some paid time off to like weeks after they have their baby, like take care of them. So they're not there yet. Um, I think we can keep making progress toward this. Um, but I think it's important to understand that there is good incremental progress and bad incremental progress. 
good incremental progress moves the needle without, you know, undermining the chances of success uh, in the future and without codifying uh, unjust systems. And so we've seen proposals that are comprehensive that would have done that, uh, and we strongly oppose them as an organization. And then we've seen proposals that are incremental that we've supported. So it, it really is a matter of, of assessing what impact will this have on equity now? What impact will it have on equity in the future? Awesome. Well, that's really, I mean, all the, 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 the questions that I have for you you today. And, and I think we had a very rich discussion, one of my favorite ones so far. Um, there's well, I feel like we always have rich discussions when I talk to you. 15-minute uh, uh, calls turn into 45-minute calls with ease. So I am really happy uh, about um, the hood incubator uh, just growing. Uh, you all have always been a great partner. Happy fifth anniversary, a little bit early. Um, and again, just thank you for the work you do and for being a leader and for making sure to, to kind of keep uh, criminal justice and the connection. Because again, I think there's a tendency for us to criminal justice reform over here equity in the cannabis industry over here and not forgetting, you know, and forgetting that the two are inextricably linked and, and should always be. Exactly. And thank you for your work um, leading MCBA. And can you, you tell our friends out and podcast, especially for, for the areas where, um, you know, they have yet to, to do medical or adult use, or they only have medical and are thinking about adult use. Um, how can people uh, get involved um, an MCBA, is it just, is it mainly for, oh, you have a permit, you're operating, that's MC, MCBAs for you, or it's like, I don't have a permit, I'm not operating, but I, I want to know about it, which, which, who's MCBA for? We have both, but the vast majority of our members are actually aspiring cannabis entrepreneurs. Uh, lots of noise made about our current you know, operator members, and we have some extraordinary folks that have been alumni and still serve uh, MCBA. But the vast majority and the people who I consider my core members are people looking to get into the industry. Um, so we do a lot of education, um, outreach. Uh, we are doing uh, at Black Canacon, we are doing a pitch contest next week. We're actually going to teach you how to pitch. So if you don't know how to pitch yet and have an idea and want to put it together and learn how to pitch it, uh, you can check our website, join us next week uh, for that training, and we will have a virtual component. So we do things like that. We do scholarships to attend events. Uh, we do workshops. We do legal clinics. All of those types of services, we, of course, do policy and advocacy. So if you are not in an area that is legalized yet, we are rolling out a grassroots committee at the beginning of the year. And so along with our brand new glossy, shiny model state policy and our existing model ordinance, we will be able to get folks trained up and empowered to take the name, leverage the brand to go in and, and kind of kick down doors and, and really insist on, on equitable cannabis reform. So whether it is you are interested in activism or and advocacy or lobbying, um, or you are interested in learning more about how to create a, start your business and how to network um, and just, you know, learn a little bit more from the folks that are actually doing it. We are, uh, we definitely would love to have you. Um, and I enjoy, uh, 
being able to serve this community. And, and that sounds that sounds really that sounds really good. And as you know, I recently moved to the south, and I'm really excited to see what MCBA chapter not chapters, but MCBA grassroots committees get activated down here. Because um, we know that we know we need a head start of of, yeah. of getting organized down here before before they start talking about a state bill uh, publicly. So uh, yeah, no, definitely. we absolutely. Part of the the impetus for this grassroots committee was a recognition that in the South, this is going to be a longer journey um, and one that will require that we begin activating and educating and supporting the community on the ground. One thing that we don't do at MCBA, uh, we don't carpet bag. So I I don't come in and colonize people's local movements. I will go and I will meet the people on the ground. I will offer resources. I will offer whatever it is they need, but I do not come in and tell people. MCVA is here. We're We're here now. We'll take over. We're here now. We're good. You can go over there. Um, So really that's the impetus from that for that. And we've, you know, been really pushing to, to build our policy committee um, with more folks that are working and have knowledge in the South. Um, very excited to have a gentleman named Marcus Farrell, who former chief of staff for Stacey Abrams and also an operator in this space will be coming in and helping us. Uh, if you have never had the par- pleasure of speaking with Marcus, uh, brilliant and an incredible straight shooter. And I feel like knows literally everybody in Southern politics. <laughs> Well, I, I already know that I look forward to you helping me make that relationship. That, that oh, connection. absolutely. You, you two should definitely connect. All right. All right. So that is all today, folks, for the High and Mighty, the podcast for your political pop friend. Again, my name is Lanice, your host. And we were joined today by the executive, executive director of Minority Cannabis Business Association, MCBA. Thank you, Amber. It is a pleasure. It was a great conversation. I'm excited. Oh, thank Just you. for the future. I'm you excited. Know, it is. Uh, it is. It is. I, I appreciate you. Uh, it has been a very DC week that I am having, and this absolutely changed the uh, my attitude uh, for the week. So always a pleasure to connect with. Hey, hoodlums. Thanks for listening in just now. We know you could have gotten the tea on anything, but you chose cannabis justice. Here are three ways you can continue to support cannabis justice. One, follow or like us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hood Incubator. Two, share the podcast with your friends. And three, donate to us on our website, www.hoodincubator.org. And remember, hoodlums, stay high and mighty. Until next time, your host, Lenise.